Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are diving into the video game Bioshock. So today is going to be the first of one of my episodes about the video game series Bioshock. Um, We're going to focus on just the first game in this episode, as there is a lot of content (laughs) um, in the Bioshock universe. Um, So I'll do a separate episode for the sequel and for the third installment, Bioshock Infinite. So if you're not familiar with the game, it's totally okay. I'm going to give like a, a little explanation, um, or if you're like, whoa, this is a little too much nerd content, <laughs> feel free to skip this episode. But today we're going we're gonna to be diving in. But before I start talking about the game, I wanted to kind of center how I wanted to like approach fiction, like like works of fiction, um, because most of the episodes that I've done so far have been um, either about like real topics or, or non-fictional pieces of media. So this is my first episode about something that's fictional, and so I wanted to kind of give an overview of how psychology, and specifically like psychodynamic theory, which is something that I'm really interested in, um, how it plays a role in analyzing media. And so something that I find really interesting is this concept of the collective unconscious. Um, And this comes from the work of Carl Jung. So Jung, our boy, Carl J, (laughs) was a a contemporary of Freud who established a way of doing therapy and more psychoanalysis that was unique from other theorists at the time. So like he's very distinct from Freud or from any other of his contemporaries. And I'm going to be quite honest, I'm not a Jungian psychologist. Um, I'm not like, I'm not trained <laughs> to do like Jungian analysis. Um, and that's, that's not something I'm interested in, but I am interested in, in some of the ideas that Jung has. Um, and his, one of his like kind of overarching ideas is this idea of the collective unconscious. And he kind of describes this as part of the psyche, part of the individual psyche that is not connected to personal experience or acquisition. So this assumption that there are parts of your memory and your being that do not come from your own life or your own lived experiences. So you haven't acquired this part of or this understanding in your psyche. It was just always there. And he argues that all of us have, that's why it's a collective, all of us have these parts of our psyche that we are not aware of, right? So that's the unconscious part. So you, you and I are not aware of this part of our psyche, um, but when we can become aware of it is when we uh, encounter what he calls archetypes, which archetypes in Jung's theory is 
is kind of what you would think of as the definition of an archetype, like a like the outline um, of a certain character or a certain trait that shows up again and again. Because I'm not Jungian, I don't know a whole lot about his like specific archetypes. Like I know a little bit about them, um, and there's like a whole shadow self, shadow side thing that that I encourage you to read more, and I've linked to one of Young's books in the sources page for this episode that you can find on Google Scholar <laughs> if you're interested in learning more um, from his writing. But essentially, archetypes are these characters or these stories that show up time and time again across different cultures, across different eras, across different types of culture, like types of media, that he he says kind of represents this like collective universal experience. So um, if you think of like the hero's journey, right, of, of like, like if we think of Hercules as, as a, a stereotypical hero, right, of, of having to go through trials, being stripped of power, emerging from weakness even stronger than before, like that type of story we see over and over again. And in fact, there are probably many modern stories that include that kind of archetype. Um, any like, even like traditional action movies, right? It's like the hero usually by the third act has been stripped of something important to him or been stripped of his power and comes back blazing uh, in glory in the last part of the movie. And that's when all the explosions happen, right? So that's that's an archetype of, of a hero. So as I go through like fictional work, I will be focusing on archetypes that I see in the media or in the particular work that I'm talking about and how those archetypes are being used by the creators either consciously or con- unconsciously to teach us something or to put some sort of message out there. Um, so yeah, I just kind of wanted to kind of lay out that that overarching thing about all of the types of fiction that I will be talking about on this podcast and why it's why we can learn a lot about media through the types of characters that they choose to, to make. So that's just to, to put that out there. So to start off, I'm going to give just kind of like an overview of the story of the first Bioshock game. Um, So in this game, you play as the protagonist, Jack Ryan. In the beginning of the game, you see this character flying in a plane. The plane crashes, and when he emerges from the water, he sees a lighthouse, which when he enters the lighthouse, enters into a contraption that takes him underwater, and here we see the underwater city called Rapture, um, which from the outside looks like this huge modern city skyscrapers, uh, you know, everything you'd expect to see in the city except for it's underwater. But as you enter into the first building of the city, you come to find out that the Rapture is in disrepair. And it also appears to be in a social upheaval. The first character that you encounter upon landing in the city is someone called Atlas who has asked you, the main character, to assist him in rescuing his family as the city is essentially in lockdown with no help from the villainous founder of Rapture, Andrew Ryan. During the course of the game, you as the main character as Jack must battle elites from around the city while fending off the deteriorating population, also called splicers, navigating um, the concept of little sisters and their protectors, big daddies, uh, and the ethical of dilemma that is Adam. The game ends in this final confrontation between Jack and Andrew Ryan. Well, it, the beginning of the end is the confrontation between Jack and Andrew, where you find out that Jack is actually Andrew's son. Jack is manipulated into killing his father, 
um, and then moves on toward the final battle with Atlas, who is revealed to not actually be Atlas, but to be a rival of Andrew Ryan, Frank Fontaine. Um, so at the time that Bioshock came out, it was lauded as like revolutionary. It was billed as a horror game, although there were elements of like an RPG game, and there's obviously a lot of very heavy like political and social messages within the game. And the concept of like the main character actually being the child of the main villain was like a pretty big twist. <laughs> Uh, and then Atlas ended up not being who he was and not actually helping your character, but, but being a villain was another big two. So it's, I've spoiled it now, but playing the game for the first time, quite shocking and was a really big, it, it was a really unexpected ending, which I think is one of the reasons why this game is so beloved even so long after it came out. And honestly, it's probably, is one of the reasons why Bioshock is one of my favorite video games, just because the story aspect was so, so rich and it just really felt so different from a lot of other other games that are out there. With that overview, I wanted to kind of break down each of the characters and kind of talk about like the archetypal nature of them, right? So obviously we start with our main character, Jack Ryan, who, as I mentioned before, we find out near the end of the game that he's Andrew Ryan's child, uh, illegitimate child with a nightclub singer. Um, And there's little pieces of this plot in the game that kind of hint at Andrew Ryan like cheating on his main girlfriend and pretty much like not wanting this child to be born and like one of the really kind of gross (laughs) plot lines is that the mother of the child sells her like embryo (laughs) like she's she sells the like fetus of Jack Ryan to Frank Fontaine and Jack Ryan is essentially like this bioengineered like accelerated embryo child um so even though like the body of Jack Ryan has been on the earth for only a few months he is in he's like a middle-aged man or like a young man it's because though that I think Ryan's or Jack Ryan's whole being um, it kind of speaks to the way that like science was uh, a little a bit out of control <laughs> in Rapture and kind of parallels this idea that like if we were to take morals off of science and take ethics off of, off of science, like we could do anything we wanted, but is that the best thing to do? And as we've come to find out toward the end of the game is that Jack Ryan actually has been brainwashed by Frank Fontaine. So there is a catchphrase um, that... Atlas, aka Frank Fontaine, says throughout the game, he says, would you kindly? So anytime he says, would you kindly, and then a command, the implication is that Jack Ryan does exactly what he says. And this is set up as like a game mechanic of like, you are going to do the next thing to progress to the next part of the game. Um, But Atlas is saying, would you kindly? So it can be things as small as like, would you kindly pick up that radio? Until eventually, you know, like, would you kindly kill so-and-so? So this is set up to be kind of like the main mechanic of how Atlas, aka Frank Fontaine, is able to get Jack Ryan to kill his father. And eventually his father does use the catchphrase against him to be killed by him. I know, a lot of moving pieces. But I wanted to talk about this idea of the catchphrase of the would you kindly, because it kind of speaks to this like cultural representation we have of brainwashing. And I found this really interesting article from like the 1960s that was literally just called brainwashing. (laughs) 
um, and was kind of breaking down of like where the idea of brainwashing comes from and maybe how it, it it's never been truly possible to completely override somebody's personality um, and like values. So Sheen in this article talks about um, the idea of brainwashing actually coming from anti-communist and Cold War fears during the Cold War, obviously, uh, specifically about the Chinese Communist Party, um, and that there was this like cultural fear in the West that the Chinese Communist Party was able to control the thoughts of, of the people that they had had held as prisoners of war, and that these people were going to come back like completely brainwashed and, you know, at the behest of the Communist Party, even if they had been released back to the West pretty blatant like <laughs> right out of the cold war right like like this this idea is like pretty pretty steeped in its time um and interestingly even though this article did seem to kind of be um it was definitely anti-communist it was definitely anti the chinese communist party um the author did lay out that research at the time in the 1960s did debunk the idea of straightforward and complete brainwashing that in fact there wasn't even hard evidence that the Chinese Communist Party was able to brainwash in fact no matter how many techniques they tried there was no like complete overriding of a person's personality and personal values so I thought that was really interesting that at the time even in the midst of the Cold War when these types of fears were at its height social science was saying like no it's not possible like you you remain a part of yourself and there are other reasons why someone may like buy into what you would call like propaganda or what you call brainwashing but the the person perpetrating the brainwashing the quote-unquote brainwashing is not able to completely like deconstruct your personality but that has not stopped our cultural fascination with this idea of someone controlling through brainwashing like your every move and it merely makes me think of the movie the manchurian candidate which was an inspiration for this concept in the game so this comes back to archetypes right we see like the same thing coming up in multiple pieces of media you know we are fascinated as a culture with this idea that someone could come in and um, just like strip you of all your own desires and wants and values and with a simple code word like would you kindly make you do unspeakable things with no when you would have no control so in real life the would you kindly phrase would not work <laughs> Um, and I, I think one of the reasons why, though, we still continue to put this type of technique or this concept into media is that we really fear losing control of our thoughts and of our autonomy. That, that for, especially for those of us in individualistic cultures, like in America, in, in the West in general, the idea that someone else could have control of your thoughts or could have control of your decisions, right, to strip you of your autonomy is one of the biggest fears because we so fiercely value individualism. And so even when we have evidence that, that, that total and complete brainwashing is not true, it cannot happen, that you are able to retain your sense of individuality even in, you know, a war like even in a situation where you're a prisoner of war, we still kind of it's, this persists in our cultural consciousness. So I think going back to the archetypes thing, right? This this because this is a fear that many of us hold, this archetype or this theme of brainwashing continues to persist. 
But in reality, what we're expressing is just a fear of losing control, which is totally, I think, reasonable. <laughs> um, I just think it's interesting to notice when it occurs in media, and, and you know, maybe that's just something to watch out for. So that's our main character, right? Our main character, because we are playing as the main character, does not have much of a personality or you know, we don't we don't know much about him because he represents us, right? He's our our kind of placeholder in the game. Um, but so one of the, the characters that you interact with the most though is Atlas, who was revealed at the end of the game to be, as I said, Frank Fontaine, um, who kind of is like the head of organized crime in Rapture and um, orchestrated a lot of the events that led to basically the social collapse of Rapture. Um, and he kind of represents I guess if I want to be Freudian about it I would say he represents like like the pure unbridled id of rapture um like his goal is to only consume and control as much as possible um and in fact part of his untimely well maybe timely (laughs) death at the end of the game is that he consumes a massive amount of the substance known as Adam and it like totally disfigures and and morphs him into like a monster that that you end up as the the main character killing um and so it's like his his like impulsive need and his 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 continuously grasping for more um almost directly results in the downfall of the society um and that his his way of of grasping for more is there's no barriers to that because of the way that rapture is set up which i'll talk about a little bit more but yeah, I kind of think of Atlas or, you know, Fontaine kind of representing like, you know, like man, mankind's most like basis natures, right? Of like more and more and more consume, consume, consume without any thought for anyone else. Um, and it's clear as you move through the game that like this character does not care about the value of, of others' lives and is more than happy to send an accelerated embryo <laughs> to go kill his own father. You know, again, it's a weird, it's a weird game. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's Atlas. Um, then we have our, you know, our other kind of main big villain is Andrew Ryan, who was, was the founder, um, who I I consider to be a, clinically speaking, a large piece of garbage. <laughs> um, he's the worst. Um, and if you're a libertarian, I'm sorry to say this, but he is a exact representation of why libertarianism will not work. <laughs> Um, and in the in the course of the game, you learn that he built Rapture specifically to avoid having to pay taxes, um, to have any regulations on business, science, technology, um, and to have actually no religious influence over his life. Um, so I guess you could say that Rapture is like big baby land playground for big baby boys who can't handle rules. Uh, that's just that's just my opinion. But you know, as we as we enter the world of Rapture, the point that you enter it in the game, um, it's totally fallen apart. There is no social safety net for any of the residents of Rapture, and there's no, you know, like, policies in place for who is responsible if something goes wrong, right? Whether it's with infrastructure, whether it's with people, and in fact, you, you come to find out that Andrew Ryan's way of dealing with Fontaine's you know, like, attempted a revolt is to just, like, sink them even farther into the ocean in a prison. Um, so his, his thing is, like, if you, you know, if you, um, go against me, I get rid of you. Um, and the developers, 
of the game um, have said that they base Andrew Ryan on Anne Rand, the author, the libertarian author, and purposely wanted to paint his like pure libertarianism as unachievable as setting him up kind of like as a foil of like if you were to take Anne Rand's book and live it to the fullest Andrew Ryan would be what happens and rapture is what would be what happens um and it is really interesting that as you move through the city you you do encounter like regular citizens of rapture um who have become these like deformed creatures called splicers and one of the reasons why they're called splicers and why they're so deformed is that once the substance atom which again I'll, I'll go over more later once that was introduced into the society because there was no regulation on like scientific innovation or experimentation on people the the atom works as like a genetic material it can alter your genetic material so that you can like um you know, become stronger, it becomes very fantastical eventually, right? Like, you can shoot fire out of your hands. And so because there's no regulation, there's no IRB <laughs> in Rapture, um, the people of Rapture become addicted and become dependent on this substance, and there is no one to watch out for them. And there is no, you know, housing authority, and there is no um, food stamps program. There is none of the stuff where when somebody becomes vulnerable through, I guess the parallel would be substance use, um, there is none of that in Rapture. And so what you end up with is a society of people who um, are uh, disposable. And, and as you play through the game, right, those are the main enemies that you are killing throughout the game, and they are disposable, and they, they are categorized as almost non-human, even though they are humans who have just ingested too much of a substance. Um, so I think that the game is pretty pretty heavily hits you over the head with the idea of when there's no social safety nets or when you try to build a society based purely on this like individual libertarianism, it doesn't go well. It does not go well and people fall through the cracks. And in fact more people will fall through the cracks than than normally do. So that's that's Andrew Ryan's thing. The next kind of main character that we encounter is Bridget Tenenbaum, who is the scientist responsible for creating the Little Sisters. So I think I'm going to take a, a, a second here to explain what the Little Sisters are and what um, and how they relate to the the substances Adam and Eve. So Adam in this game is this yucky red substance. <laughs> Um, that allows you to manipulate your genetic code. So when someone injects substances made out of atom, they alter the body uh, permanently. And in and to fuel these permanent changes, the the person must now consume the the opposite substance called Eve. So pretty heavily religious influence here, right? Which is pretty funny because the society was built to be not religious at all, <laughs> but they, they use Adam and Eve, um, and Eve is, is like a blue substance, so they're, they're, they're into, introduced as like opposite, opposite substances that complement each other, so the Adam, um, helps you to originally make the change, and the Eve maintains the change, and so this is the reason why the society has collapsed, because people are so desperate for Adam, because you need more and more Adam to make more and more changes to your genetic code. So Bridget Tenenbaum is the scientist who was 
who kind of discovered Adam originally. So it originally comes from a sea slug. And again, if the nerdy episodes are not for you, <laughs> I get it. We're now having a conversation about fictional sea slugs. So I just, I appreciate it if you're sticking with me. But Bridget discovers these sea slugs and that they cured, like the, the goop from the sea slug, like cured a, like neurological, a neurological injury that uh, someone she was observing had. So she's like, okay, we gotta make something out of these slugs. And eventually, because there's no regulations, because there's no, um, like, code of conduct or code of ethics for human experimentation, she discovers that when you implant the sea slugs into people, they grow more atom. Um, And that specifically when you plant them into little girls they grow the most atom, and that the the little girls can um, harvest genetic material from others to make more atom. So this is this is probably one of the most like the like one of the darkest things about the game is that there are these little ghost girls, like and they look scary. They have like big yellow eyes, and they're very tiny. Very unsettling to look at. Um, but they're running around and they are, because they are able to create Adam in their bodies, um, the splicers have incentive to kill the little sisters. Um, which is why they in turn have these protectors called big daddies, which are, if you have ever seen like those old timey diving suits, it's like imagine if that was sentient <laughs> and walking around and like. If you get really into the lore of the game, there's like some models where they just like take organs out of out of people and paste them into these suits so they can never come out of the suits. Like it's it's really horrible. Um, but so the big daddies are bonded to the little sisters, and their goals are to their main aim is to protect the little sisters because um, the little sisters are like what the most vulnerable. Um, so that's and all of that is the work of Bridget Tenenbaum, and this again, is not possible if we have, if there were, like, regulations and ethics guidelines, but there isn't that in Rapture. Um, But Bridget Tenenbaum is, I think, one of the most interesting characters in the game um, because of her backstory. So, I did not know this, but apparently the developers specifically made this character autistic, so Bridget is autistic. She's also Jewish, and she is a survivor of Auschwitz. So, throughout the game... You uncover these like audio diaries that kind of reveal her story and that when she was taken you know prisoner in the concentration camp she kind of volunteers or it not she volunteers but she's it's noted that she's like incredibly bright like scientifically incredibly bright so she's saved from extermination essentially and becomes like an assistant to what we're led to believe is Joseph Mengele which is like if you know anything about Holocaust history, he was, like, the worst, um, one of the worst because he did just, like, horribly unsanctioned, unethical experiments on people in concentration camps. Didn't matter if you died as a result. Um, he was just trying to prove his, like, very wacky theories. So she is, like, trained after she's liberated from the camp. She doesn't really have a place in the world, so she ends up in rapture. And because she is so brilliant, um, and basically the game is the game tells us that she was kind of struggling until she found this concept of Adam, um, and then she becomes like one of the most important people in Rapture because the society is so dependent on Adam. 
but by the point you meet her in the game, her quote-unquote maternal instincts have kicked in and she's realized that what she did was wrong and she dedicates her life to saving the little sisters. So this is one of the things that you have an option in the game. The game does give you options between like uh, good behavior and, and evil behavior and one of the options is that when you encounter a little sister and defeat the big daddy that protects her, you can either harvest her, which is like kill her for her Adam, uh, for the big old sea slug, or you can save her through Bridget's, like, special potion, <laughs> um, wherein you won't get as much genetic material from her, but eventually you'll be rewarded by Bridget Tenenbaum later in the game. So this sets up, like, are you going to hurt the most vulnerable to get ahead, um, or will you take the, like, the path of, you know, like, the moral high ground and save a life, even if you don't get rewarded immediately. So that's that's kind of the tension that Tenenbaum's character brings to the game. Now, interestingly enough, I found on the Wikipedia page that the creator of the game, who is Jewish, um, did not realize that he had put so much, so many Jewish characters into the game, and that a lot of these characters are kind of dealing with these themes of displacement um, and like kind of wrestling with their identities, and that was something he was unaware of. And so, again, coming back to the collective unconscious, like, it's interesting that the creator of the game is kind of in real time dealing with parts of his unconscious by using, uh, by creating characters that are archetypes of the themes he's wrestling with. So, that's just a little note that I was found was interesting. Now, my take on Tenenbaum. Um, was that she reminded me of a lot of the psychological studies that came out after World War II. Um, most infamously, uh, I think of Stanley Milgram and Philip Zimbardo. So Stanley Milgram, if you're unfamiliar with his study, um, it was the study where he had someone administer a series of increasingly painful electric shocks to a participant that they could not see but they could hear. And his conclusions from the study was that the reason why the Nazis came to power and were able to do so much damage was because ordinary people would listen to people in authority and do whatever they told them even if they were uncomfortable or under distress. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the nuances of Milgram's study because it's there's been attempts to replicate it and you know, maybe his conclusions weren't necessarily the most accurate and that there is evidence that people will stand up to authority figures when it goes against their values. Um, but Milgram's study is such a unique snapshot of how psychologists and scientists in general were trying to make sense of a post-World War II war, a post-World post War II world. So how do we continue to live alongside other human beings knowing that they are capable of atrocities like the Holocaust. So that was Milgram's study was was he was wrestling with this idea of um, of like authority and and people not being able to stand up to authority figures telling you to do crimes. Um, and the other person I mentioned is Philip Zimbardo, which is if you've ever heard of the prison, the Stanford Prison Experiment, that's our guy. Um, and he actually did was inspired to build that experiment because of similar reactions like Milgram of like how do we make sense of how people can do something so awful kind of the short rundown of the Stanford prison experiment was he had students who he assigned to be prison guards and students he assigned to be prisoners and he kind of like locked them in a in a room 
in the college, and he played the warden, which was not a great idea. Um, and like the study had to eventually be canceled because the prison guards had taken on their role so much that they were actually starting to abuse the students playing prisoners and the students playing prisoners had taken on their role so much that there was like this learned helplessness and they would just obey. Again, there is a lot to that study and although no one has ever tried to replicate it exactly because it's incredibly unethical, <laughs> um, there are more modern takes on that study or on those concepts that kind of suggest that um, it's not always 100% that just taking on a role of authority means that you will immediately fall into line with, with all of these, um, you know, like authoritarian principles. Uh, but needless to say, both Milgram and Zimbardo represent this era of psychologists who were just so, uh, like, destroyed, <laughs> you know, baffled by how ordinary people could become involved in something like the Nazi party and participate in the Holocaust. And they were really wrestling with, with how do you understand people. And so that's what I think of when I think of Tenenbaum is I think she represents this archetype of like, you know, trying to bring like ob objectivity to understanding the world and how pure objectivity is not always the best way to see the world. And that, um, you know, for her, kind of like the, the conclusion of her story is that when she is able to feel empathy and, and kind of protect the little sisters, she does more har she does more good than harm. Um, when she's able to kind of balance feelings, you know, subjectivity and objectivity. Now, I did mention earlier, right, that that her character is um, described as autistic or as being on the spectrum, um, and I think that this is not the best portrayal of autism, just because I think they kind of. The, the creators of the game kind of lean on her autism as an explanation for why she, like, didn't care about, you know, like, turning children into atom factories. Um, and I don't think that's, like, a very fair characterization of people who are autistic, particularly women who are on the spectrum, um, and this idea that, you know, Bridget's inherent maternal instincts would kick in, and that's when she would decide to save the life of a child. Um, I, I just think it's like a very simplified um, portrayal of, of women and of autistic women specifically, um, which, you know, this game was made in 2007, so it's, you know, it's, a, <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's of the times, <laughs> um, but I just, I just did want to kind of acknowledge that and that I think there are ways to make characters care for each other that don't have to especially female characters that don't have to pull upon this idea of, like, the second you turn 30, your, like, reproductive system kicks into gear and, and you care about children. Like, you, you care about children whether you have a active reproductive system or not. It's just my, is my opinion. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's in a nutshell, Bridget Tenenbaum. And, I, you know, I think she's one of the most interesting characters, which is why I spent so much time on her. And I think she does, if we look at the, you know, her archetype and kind of what she represents, there's, there are a lot of facets to it. And I think, you know, one of the kind of shortcomings of the theories of archetypes or the theory of the collective unconscious is that we have to consider, like, how we filter the archetype through our own identities and biases. And so I think this, like, team, this, uh, you know, the team that created this character maybe wasn't able to 
envision a, f a female character or envision a character with autism or the combination of both in a way that, that really does justice to those identities. So that aside, um, there's two other main characters that you encounter that kind of represents these mini bosses that you have to fight as you move through Rapture. Both are Jewish again, um, which in the Wikipedia article, the, the creators quoted as saying like he didn't realize how many characters he put in that were coded as Jewish. Um, so our first character is J.S. Steinman, who is a plastic surgeon who um, was basically using the atom to perfect his surgical techniques, and he becomes very obsessed with creating a perfect body. Um, and in fact, you learn throughout the game that part of his downfall was he began doing unauthorized surgeries on clients, so they would like wake up post-operative and not look how they want it to look. They would be deformed. You do have to kill him to move through the game to kind of like put a put an end to his reign of terror. Um, but I think that, that Steinman is, you know, his archetype is, or he, he kind of represents beauty standards taken to the extreme. Um, and in fact, like the, the ultimate scene with him right before you, you know, fight him, um, he gives this little speech where he's like, oh, they're too symmetrical, you know, this one's not thin enough, this one's not tall enough, this one's too short, uh, or this one's too tall. You know, it's, it's, there's never any pleasing, and it's almost like the more you perseverate on beauty standards, the less likely you are to meet them. Um, which, to be honest, I, I, I think is true, um, and I think, I think a lot of people regardless of gender, have experienced perseverating on their body and perseverating on I don't match what I see on Instagram or on TV or in magazines. And the way that you see your body is the way that Steinman sees his patients, right? Like, it's never perfect. It's never just right. You can never truly achieve pure beauty. And rather than accepting that there is no one standard of beauty, um, it kind of consumes you and, and can be very damaging. So I just thought, I thought, I did think it was interesting that the creators of the game included as a villain, basically like beauty standards taken to the extreme. Um, but so uh, this character I think just really does represent like, uh, you never win <laughs> with beauty standards. Like you, you really do never win. Um, and I think it's, it's probably better to just accept accept who you are and accept what you look like and, and find communities and spaces that celebrate that um, and love your body as it is. Um, and then the second, moving to the second character, or the last character that I'm going to talk about is Sander Cohen, who is kind of the second mini-boss you encounter before you get to Andrew Ryan. Um, he is an artist um, who resides in Rapture. And he is kind of like obsessed with enshrining these aesthetic representations of violence. And in fact, you come to find out that all the statues in his area are actually real people. Like, well, not real people because it's a video game. Um, but are, you know, people from Rapture that he's turned into statues. They're like covering them in plaster. Um, so it's like this very violent, grotesque representation of art. And um, he also does represent the way like the social structure i mean all all of the characters that you encounter that like as villains kind of inherently show us the social structure of rapture and that even though this was a city that was built to have like no um there was supposed to be no barriers for you achieving ultimate wealth or achieving ultimate 
academic prowess or whatever, um, there very clearly were elite people in the city and, and those at the bottom. Um, and, you know, Cohen is one of these people. When he came to Rapture, already had a lot of money and so was able to kind of use his, his position and his power to um, do whatever he wanted. And that meant, like, using bodies and, and human labor for his own uh, his own purposes. Now, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about Cohen, um, and this ties into the archetype, is that he is portrayed as what TV tropes <laughs> calls the depraved homosexual. So it's like explicit in the game that Cohen is gay. Well, I guess it's not super explicit. Like it is, it is represented in in little pieces of the of like the audio diaries, um, and it's implied that all of his assistants are male and that there was pressure for them to like have sexual contact with him um which according to tv tropes which is my favorite website (laughs) um this is part of the the trope of the depraved homosexual that this is a, a villain who is gay and whose part of his villainy is his sexuality right that he maybe is very predatory only seeking straight men um to engage in with sexually or only seeking like naive men who who may be gay but are not as experienced um and that this part of his sexuality is evil right like and he is inherently evil because of the way that he uses his sexuality as a weapon um and so this is a trope that unfortunately is very common um particularly in disney movies <laughs> but we'll get to, we might talk about that later um and it, it does, um, you know, I, I think it's important to talk about this trope and, and or this, like, this archetype as, as incredibly damaging. And so, you know, these types of characters that have been present in media for so long help perpetuate this idea that, like, gay men are inherently predatory and that, you know, you have to be, like, on the lookout or you have to be careful around gay men because they will come after you sexually regardless of your orientation, you know, for other men. Um, and that's a really dangerous idea because it, it has led to, it leads to hate crimes. Like, it leads to violence against gay men or, or gay people. It leads to, you know, ostracization from society. It leads to things like why it took so long for same-sex marriage to be even allowed in this country. Like, all you know, the, the the concept of the depraved homosexual is not the reason why same-sex marriage was outlawed for so long, but it is part of this like cultural conversation about same-sex male relationships um, that is very detrimental. And so I thought that Cohen's character was so interesting to talk about because, uh, you know, if we're using this, this like idea, this framework of archetypes, his is an archetype that I think should be eliminated <laughs> from the collective unconscious. And I think is... A very powerful example of why just because something is an archetype or a trope doesn't mean that it's good, right? And, and this is why we need to examine and understand the the themes and the archetypes that we see coming up over and over again. So Cohen, you know, while a very interesting character and in other uh, iterations of the game and other um, lore in the Bioshock world, you know, plays a, a, a very interesting part you know, his role as this trope or this, this bad portrayal of a gay man whose, whose villainy is tied to his sexuality is, is not great. Um, and is something to, to be aware of. 
those are the main characters and like the main archetypes that we see in the game. I did also want to kind of touch on the way that gender is used in Bioshock. You know, the according to the Wikipedia, <laughs> um, the developer specifically chose this this concept of little sisters to be to be shocking. Um, and in fact, there there are some stories on there about how uh, they almost weren't able to get it through the development process of the game because it was so upsetting. And and when they chose to put this character model into the game, they fully knew that they were going to allow the player to choose to kill them in the game. Now I will say, you know, when you are playing the game and you do choose the harvest option, you don't see any like graphic depictions of violence against the, the, the little sisters. It, the screen just kind of goes green. Um, and then you are holding the slug in in your hand, and you don't you don't like see her body afterwards. Um, it is still really hard, and I have to say that like I personally I've played this game several times, <laughs> and every time I play it, I really struggle with even though I want to, you know, try the like bad ending to get the bad ending. I really struggle with harvesting, and I try to save them in every playthrough um, because it really does pull on this kind of pulls on this instinct to protect to protect. A little a, a child and specifically like a female child um, who are you know I think we might all agree that we consider like female children to be the most vulnerable in our society um, to in contrast to the little sisters we have these big daddies that are portrayed as like these hulking masculine protectors um, and that if you you know you come close to a little sister they fly into this rage um, and attack on sight and honestly, it just makes me think of the meme of like, you know, like like prom photos where like the dad, the daughter's dad is standing next to the couple with like a shotgun pointed at her boyfriend. You know, it's just not my favorite meme because it's like very tacky. Um, but it's just like, I think it's, it is an example of that, that portrayal of gender roles, like these kind of rigid traditional ways of looking at gender of like little girls are to be protected and their fathers are to be kind of like the ultimate line of defense. Um, I mean, they even call these creatures big daddies when they're not even the fathers of these children. Um, In fact, that's a really big piece of the game is that the, the, the children used to be turned into little sisters are stolen away from their real families, Uh, which again, it just adds another layer of like horror to it. So, you know, from the perspective of developing a horror game, they did a really good job with this <laughs> dynamic. However, it's really hard to play through, and it does and it it does illustrate kind of the ways we think about gender, uh, particularly the traditional binary, you know, male female genders. Um, and you know, overall in the game, most of the characters you encounter are male. In fact, I think Bridget is the only is the only character that you interact with in the game who is female. There are like supplementary characters that you kind of discover through the world that are women that like played an important role in Andrew Ryan's life. But Bridget is the only person that you interact with and she is is essentially coded as like the least feminine character, like as the least feminine you could make a woman. Um, which whatever. <laughs> like, you know, women present in many different ways, but you know, especially as I was talking about with, like, you know, she didn't care about these children until her maternal instincts kicked in, you know, it's like, that was when she truly became a woman, like, otherwise she was kind of denying her womanhood until she embraced her, her motherly instincts, and, you know, tying womanhood to motherhood, I think, can be a little tricky, can be a dangerous road, because not all women are mothers, um, 
and maybe not all people who identify as a mother or identify as a woman. And that's, I think, is kind of hard for some people to think about how that could be possible. But it's just that that is the kind of tricky nature of gender. But so that's, I just did want to touch on that because, you know, I'm a feminist. <laughs> and I do like to engage in feminist praxis. So I thought the way that gender was portrayed in Bioshock 1 um, was interesting. And, and it's it's not as... Ex- as it's not as explicit because there are so many male characters. Um, it's kind of hard to miss the way that women are represented, but it's not always the best. Next Bioshock episode where I talk about Bioshock 2, our main antagonist is a woman, so we're going to get a little bit more into um, like the gender dynamics and gender politics of that game. Um, but I think for now, this is pretty much it. I really <laughs> love this game. Uh, I've probably played it all the way through five or six times. Um, I own all the DLC, (laughs) all the, you know, the remastered version. Like, I love Bioshock. Um, So I hope that this was a fun little nerd alert diversion for you. You know, I, I encourage you to reach out either through the email or through the website if you have any thoughts about Bioshock, uh, if you have any suggestions for, like, future games. Um, that I can do episodes about or that I that I should take a look at, uh, you know, please let me know. Otherwise, I, as always, appreciate you listening, um, and I'll see you in the next episode. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review the podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode.